0: 1 Peter chapter 2, our series, Summer Baggage, uncovers some of the the heaviest bags that we carry in life. And what we're being encouraged to do is to exchange these heavy bags for the peace of God. Tonight, we're gonna talk about the baggage of envy, the baggage of envy, and this is our text, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse number one. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Note what should be obvious here. It should be obvious here that when Peter uses the word yourselves, He's talking to us. He's talking to believers. If you go back to the beginning, just the first opening paragraph of this book, he's clearly writing to believers. He's writing to those who have been sprinkled by the blood of the lamb. Have you been saved? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, this is who he's writing to. He's writing to us. He's writing to believers. And evidently what's happened is sin has crept into their hearts unawares. Uh, reading John 21, it seems to me like Peter was no stranger to envy. When we, when we looked at the baggage of pride, we also uh, were here in 1 Peter. Um, Peter was no stranger to pride and I would I would dare say that I don't think Peter was a stranger to envy as well You remember in John chapter 21 where the Apostle John right this is just as this is right at the end of Christ's earthly ministry and John uh, Peter is so concerned about John and John was so close to Christ of course Peter's in the inner circle But I think that there was some envy there that Peter had of the apostle John. In Luke chapter 22, even at the Last Supper, remember the disciples, man, they are jockeying for like, who's who's gonna have the best seats? Who's gonna be sitting with the greatest honor in the kingdom? And I think if we do some soul searching, and this is what I hope that we will do as believers tonight, that we will do some soul searching because I think we might be surprised to find that here in our own lives, we are carrying this heavy baggage of envy. And most likely, we're not even aware that we've been toting around this baggage of envy, and it's been robbing us of joy and peace in our life so I'm what I'm praying is that the Holy Spirit will help us identify it in our lives tonight and help us exchange that for Christ's peace so we're gonna look at first of all the curse of envy because envy is what has been called the poison of the soul the poison of the soul what do you know about envy when you think of envy what do you think of oftentimes we think we, we kind of lump envy in together with jealousy don't we Uh, sometimes we think that envy is always something that whenever we use the word it's wrong like have you ever said to someone man I envy you like you're going to Hawaii I've always wanted to go to Hawaii man I envy you it doesn't mean that we that we necessarily mean it in the worst sense of the word we're just saying hey man that's cool you get to go to Hawaii man have a blast right We, we don't mean that necessarily in the worst kind of a way it's not bad a bad thing to admire something or that someone has or uh, who someone is. Envy goes beyond just admiring someone. Let's define it. Shakespeare called envy the green -eyed monster, the green-eyed monster. Here's what, here's what envy is. Envy is when you want something that someone else has and you're upset that you don't have the same. Again, we lump sometimes jealousy and envy together. But there's an important distinction between the two. Jealousy is oriented toward what we possess. Envy is oriented toward what others possess. We're jealous for what we have, which is why jealousy isn't always wrong. Um, You can be, guys, you can be jealous for Your wife, right? I mean, like, she, right, as a spouse, you belong to one another. You're jealous of her love. God is a jealous God, right? Um, And so jealousy isn't always a, a wrong kind of thing. When it comes to envy, however, it's always oriented at what I don't have, what you What others have. In fact, a literal definition of envy is a a malignant, excuse me, malignant, let me say it correctly, malignant or hostile feeling. It's not just saying, hey man, you have a lot. Well, that's great. I wish I had that. No, it's actually, I'm angry. I'm upset that you have it and I don't. You are such and such and I am not. So envy begins just by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what they are enjoying? And it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I am not able to enjoy? So envy is that feeling of ill will when we hear about someone else's success. We understand this, right? We, we, we get this. You hear about someone else has been blessed. We just sang about the goodness of God, right? And you, you see that someone, man, they just got a new car. They just, got, they just bought a new home, whatever. Whatever it is. And they, they got something. They were blessed in some way. Maybe it was, maybe it was someone that they were given a, a, a bonus at work. And now they have all this extra money, and you don't, you know? They, they got a bump in their salary. Man, you're just kind of upset because you're just trying to get by. Sometimes it's that, you know, perhaps it's that, that person who's been given a position of responsibility at work. You know, someone, maybe they got the promotion that you always wanted to have, you were working toward, and they got the promotion. Or say at church, they've been given a blessing or a responsibility, and we resent them for that. This is envy. And yeah, it even happens inside The church, even inside the the fellowship of believers. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, he said, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. It was going on in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul writes to them, you are still worldly, for since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? You see, as, as the church, we can act just like the world. We can act, you know, from the, from the base elements of our humanity, from our depravity. Man, we can just live in that way and act in that way, even toward one another. So it's that feeling of ill will when we hear about the success of others. Conversely, it can be that feeling of happiness when we hear about someone else's misfortune. You with me? Right? So... The person that was doing well, now they're not doing so well. They didn't get the salary increase, your coworker, they got demoted. Like, yes, yes. They deserve that, you know? Maybe there's a little resentment in there. Maybe there's a little bit of of bitterness uh, in there. We get the sense of happiness when they've been demoted. Uh, perhaps another person's business has failed, one of your competitors, you know, and, and they finally went under. Uh, I can tell you that that this is such a regular f- part of humanity. This is something that we deal with all the times in our life, in the church world. This goes on amongst pastors. It goes on in, in churches, right? The struggling church down the street has to close, and, and there's a sense of, yeah, they deserve that, or whatever, you know? Um, that's all envy. And envy is such a, a, a curse to humanity. If pride were the most common sin, as we said when we looked at it, envy soon follows afterward. In fact, I would dare say that without pride and envy, Many other sins wouldn't exist. Think about it. Would there be adultery without pride or envy? Would there? I mean, you could just go down a litany of sins, and you can tie them back to, to, the, to, to these two heavy packs of pride. And it, would there be gluttony if, there was, if pride and envy weren't a sin? You see, I think there's a good reason why the Ten Commandments conclude with a prohibition against coveting, coveting, that that desire of the heart that leads us into sin. Envy is a deeply private but destructive form of covetousness, right? Covetousness is an overweening desire for what is not ours. It wants what the other guy has. Envy is mad that the other guy has it. So you with me? You following this? We don't have to necessarily I should put it this way. We don't necessarily envy someone that we perceive is greater than us. I doubt anybody here. Boy, this rug is going to drive me crazy all night. I don't think anybody here wakes up in the morning just envying Bill Gates, right? It's not because, you know, he's Microsoft and you're an Apple guy. Like, I'm an Apple guy. I don't, I don't have... I got rid of all my Microsoft stuff several years ago. Um, it's not that maybe you hate Microsoft. It's not, it's not necessarily that, that he has billions of, I don't know how much money the guy has, but hundreds of billions of dollars? I don't know, is he a trillionaire yet? No, I don't think so. But uh, it's not that, that you don't have his wealth. You don't get up and envy a guy like Bill Gates. Why? Because you know you're never going to rise to that level. Uh, If you're a musician, you don't get up, you know, in the morning and you're all saying you hate Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton. You know, these these guys, these are guitarists. They're in their own league, right? So you don't wake up envying these guys who are so far beyond what you know your capability is ever going to be. Here's who we tend to envy. You know who it is? Equals, equals, envy breeds on proximity. We don't envy someone who's huge and successful. We envy our neighbor who lives across the street. We envy the guy who works in the cubicle next to ours. That's who we envy, we envy a brother we envy a sister. We envy a co-worker, someone who has worked at the job as long as I have, and they get the promotion, and I don't. Envy. I hate that, right? That's envy. We're fine as long as we're equal. We're okay if we're all in the same playing field, right? If, if it's a competitor down the street, we're okay if... We, you know, we, we do about the same amount of business during the year. But as soon as the other one starts to succeed, soon as the other one gets that opportunity that we think we should have had, as soon as something wonderful happens for them, what do we want to do? We want to pull them back down, baby, right? We want to remain equal. Well, this is illustrated throughout the Scripture. Let me, let me give you a couple. Well, there's Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, remember them? These are the, the, t- the first two kids on planet Earth. Adam and Eve's first two sons. Cain being the oldest, Abel being the next. And Cain compared his own efforts to that of his brothers. And he began to resent his brother. You remember the story? I don't have time to get into a lot of details. I want to just briefly touch on a, a couple different illustrations the, of this in the Bible but Cain got angry at his brother. He was mad. He was upset that God had accepted the sacrifice of his brother and not his. And so bef- actually before Cain was upset with Abel, he was upset at God, really, And oftentimes that is the case. In fact, someone said, this is the way envy always works. It never starts with the object of envy. It starts with a shake of the fist at the skies, a frustration with the gods, a deep feeling of injustice. Why has God not given me what I want, I need, I deserve? Have you ever felt this before? This is how our heart works and I think we all can identify with it. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, twins. Born into a dysfunctional family, into a rivalry, right? Grabbing onto the heel, coming out of the, out of the womb. I mean, Isaac, you, as we know the story, Isaac, the dad, favored es- Esau, who was a hunter. Rebecca, mom, favored and preferred Jacob, who was quiet, liked to stay at home, enjoyed cooking, right? So from an early stage, the two twins wanted what the other had. Jacob saw the opportunity when Esau came in from hunting one day and he was hungry. He wanted his birthright so Jacob took advantage of the situation and his brother's impulsiveness by demanding that Esau uh, rights as a firstborn son be given to him in exchange for a a bowl of soup that he was cooking and Esau not really thinking about the situation and and, driven by his stomach as we are guys, agreed. He agreed, not even realizing that that would come back to haunt him. And so each of these boys, each of these sons, Jacob and Esau, they wanted the blessing of the parent, but instead both parents effectively pitted the other against each other. What a mess. But here they both envied what the other had, and it made them angry and upset. Rachel and Leah, two sisters these are all in, in the book of Genesis. They're all family, related to family, except for the, the well, in the general, in the broad scope of, of the word family in, the, in Genesis, yeah, they're all family, but, but Rachel and Leah related. Sisters compared themselves to each other. Uh, Leah was fertile. Both, these are both, now, go back and read it, but these are both wives of the same man, okay? Long story, but Jacob, Who we just talked about was kind of, he was tricked. He was tricked on the wedding night, and he was given the bride he didn't want or, or love. Well, Leah, the oldest, was fertile. Rachel wasn't. Rachel desperately wanted kids, couldn't understand why God had blessed Leah so much. She's got no kids. On the other hand, Jacob loved Rachel with all of his heart. Leah was upset about that. She despised Rachel because of it. Rachel was the beautiful sister. Leah, by contrast, was plainer in appearance. So Leah became bitter about the whole thing. Every time she had another son, she hoped that her husband would finally love her more than he loved her sister. I mean, it's all envy. Leah's envying... Rachel for the love and her beauty. Rachel's envying Leah for the children that she is giving to her husband, and she made an idol out of being able to have kids. There's also, I'll give you one more: Jacob and his Jacob and his brothers. Right? Excuse me, Joseph. Joseph and his brothers. You know the story, right? A very, a very. Uh, well-known story in Genesis, how Joseph, uh, Rachel's uh, oldest son, right? So there we had Rachel and Leah. Again, this, this is one family. One, one family, kids in, from a couple different generations there. But, but Rachel was Jacob's treasured wife, as we said. His brothers were sons of Leah. Well, Joseph was given this coat of many colors. You know the story, right? Symbolizing his dad's special affection for him. And to make matters worse, Joseph had this dream where all the brothers bow down to him, right? And so the brothers were upset and envied uh, Joseph. They hated Joseph, though Joseph had done nothing wrong. You get the picture? I mean, this is why envy is called the green-eyed monster. And if you don't pick up on it, envy can be passed, like most sins, from one generation to the next. Parents, this is why, this is, this is why we have to look in the mirror on this stuff, because we, we can teach this to our kids by how we act as adults. And The kids learned this envy from their parents. It went for several generations there. Well, the scripture prohibits this, church. Proverbs 23, 17, don't let your heart envy sinners. Instead, always fear the Lord. Galatians 5, 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why? Because God calls us to holiness. Amen? God calls us to holiness. In our past, sin. Be it any sin, including envy, it has no place in our present sanctification. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 says, For we too were once foolish, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Church, we have been saved from sin We've been delivered from sin, including the baggage, the sin of, of envy. We've been saved from this, delivered from this, and God calls us to walk and to live in holiness. Why? because that's what pleases him and because there's always consequences with sin and that bears consequences in our life. Let's talk about that. Number two, the consequences of envy because envy spoils everything it touches. I want you to to see this just briefly. First of all, envy is always spiritually destructive. Always spiritually destructive. In fact, if you look at our text, Peter is implying that these sins, evil, uh, 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 excuse me, envy included, He's implying that it stunts our spiritual growth. Look at this here. Rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. What's he implying here? I believe what he's implying is that envy and these other sins have a way of stunting our spiritual growth how? By suppressing our appetite for the word of God. We know this to be true in our own lives. Someone said, the Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Have you heard that before? The Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. When there's sin in our lives, it suppresses our appetite for the word of God. If you find yourself like having no appetite for the Bible, and you know that you're a born-again believer, you know that you're saved, when your appetite for the word of God isn't there, that's a sign that there's some sin in your life that is suppressing that appetite. You're, you've got, you're, you're living on junk food, and you don't have that desire for the pure milk of the word. Now, now don't, don't think that Peter there, in these verses, when he talks about the milk, he's not... He's not contrasting the milk and the meat. That's not the point in this particular passage, right? Milk for babes, uh, meat for the mature. That's not what this is about. He's just simply pointing to the fact that the word is where we get our nourishment, okay? Well, envy has a way of suppressing our appetite for the word of God. Why? Because envy takes our focus off of God. Think about it. We are singing these songs tonight, 10,000 Reasons, singing about uh, the blessings of God. I hope that as we're singing these songs, we're, we're thinking about that. We're, we're considering God's good, and yeah, he's blessed me in so many ways. Maybe a blessing comes back to our mind as we're singing that song. What's happening? Our focus is on God. But when we're envying, we're not focused on God. What are we focused on? Them. Right? We're focused on what the other person has and why we don't have it, and it makes us upset. And just like we saw in the illustrations in Genesis, it it severs, it it breaks off our fellowship with God. Doesn't mean that we're no longer related, doesn't mean we're no longer a child of God. It just means that we're acting like a selfish, self-centered child. That's what it means. So envy is spiritually. Destructive. James says this: where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and listen, every evil practice, every evil practice. This is what envy leads to. You see, envy replaces God on the throne of our heart, and we be, we put ourselves there. We put ourselves on the throne. I deserve that, I'm upset I don't have that, I'm not that someone, I don't have what they have, I'm not who they are, I, don't, I wasn't given what they have been given, I'm not blessed like, like I've seen them be blessed, see? We take God off the throne, we stop looking at the goodness of God and the blessings of God, and we start, it all becomes self-centered, and now we, it is all about us, and when we do that, man, we give Satan a stronghold in our life, don't we, church? Don't we? Envy is spiritually destructive. It's also relationally destructive. It breaks down relationships. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because now I'm upset with someone. How how am I gonna have a good relationship with someone that I'm envy, right? Envying. It leads to strife, it leads to division, it leads to Uh, a breakdown uh, even within our own fellowship and camaraderie that we have with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it makes friendship and unity virtually impossible. Think about all the one another's in the Bible, right? We're to love one another. What are some of the other one another's? We're to love one another. We're to provoke one another to good works, right? Uh, We're to honor one another. We're to pray for one another. Well, all of that breaks down when there's envy in our heart toward someone else, all of that stops. So it's relationally destructive, and we, that's what we saw in all of these relationships. Stifled out love. You think about Rachel and Leah. They were so discontent in their own life, in relationship with their husband, and the and the fact that you know Rachel's upset she can't have kids, Leah's upset her husband doesn't love her, that it made Them just miserable people. What a miserable home they lived in and it could all be traced back to the baggage of envy. Jacob and Esau. You know what happened there? Well, after Jacob stole Esau's birthright, deceived his father, he had to go on the run. He never even saw his mother before she died. He was separated from his mother who loved him so dearly simply because of the baggage of envy. It tore their family apart. You think about the story that we told about Joseph and his brothers, man. The brothers became cold and callous. They, they threw their brother their brother in a pit, in a well, and then they, then they saw an opportunity to make some cold, hard cash. A you know, little American consumer, uh, uh, consumerism, I guess it would be like, hey, man, we can make a buck off this kid. You know, They plotted to kill their own brother. A, a, a Cain actually killed his own brother. You talk about a family falling apart. That was the very first family. Those were the first two kids in the human race and the, the first boy killed the second boy in all of humanity. Whew. Man, that was right at the beginning. You watch the news and you think, what has gone wrong with this world? You can trace it all the way back to what happened in the Garden of Eden and we are just chip off, the chips off the old block, aren't we? I mean, that's how, the acor, acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. Envy is relationally destructive. It's also personally destructive. Man, it robs us of our peace. It robs us of our happiness. We become miserably dissatisfied. We can't even, it, it blocks out all the, ble- we can't see the blessings anymore. All we focus on is what we don't have, what we wish we had. It can lead to physical illness. This has been proven uh, migraine headaches, high blood pressure, ulcers, other other illnesses. I think this is why the body, the the Bible, excuse me, calls envy the rottenness of the bones, the rottenness of the bones. Like it rots us away at our very core. It can also lead to crime and lawlessness. In order to get what we want, we begin taking matters into our own hands. I'll get what I want if I have to step on someone. If I have to. Hurt someone. Envy shoots at another and wounds itself. Church, this is why we don't want to carry this bag. You don't want to carry the baggage of envy from this season of your life into the next one. You want to put the bag down and replace it for the peace of Christ. So let's talk about that. Number three, what's the cure? What's the cure for envy? It can be cured. I think what we have to do is we have to look ahead 2,000 years from Joseph to another Joseph, the son of God, who who, who was robed like Joseph was robed. He was robed in humanity. He was loved by his father with pure love. His brothers seized him, right? Uh, Stripped him of his robe, tore his flesh Uh, from his body with, uh, uh, with a whip, nailed him to a tree, ignored his cries and his suffering, and his human heart erupted there on that cross. Jesus Christ is God in human form, but all of that scene gives us hope. It gives us hope. Because on that cross, Jesus Christ accomplished something for us through his death and resurrection that delivers us from this sin of envy. If you're saved, you've been delivered from this. Now look, we can can pick the bags back up. When he got saved, man, it was all forgiven. We can pick them up and we can drag them along for a while. And what what God says is, and what Peter's saying here is, rid yourself up, put them down Quit dragging this along with you all your days. God saved you from this. Jesus, the blood of Jesus, you've been sprinkled by the blood from this. Get rid of the bag. And so how do we do that? Just simply, first, well, you have to confess the sin of envy. This is always where it starts. Uh, Peter says this, rid yourselves. Rid yourselves. Just like you take off a, a, a sweaty, soiled shirt. You come in from working in your yard this time of year. You know what I mean, like Ken, when you came in this morning after fixing the irrigation, right, right? I mean, you know what that? Is? You want, I man? Like, get this thing, get this shirt off of me. It's nasty. In the same way that we rid ourselves, we strip that off. We're a strip off envy, like the grave clothes of Lazarus. We strip that off. How do we do this? Well, it begins with just humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging, Lord, I'm carrying a bag. I'm carrying the sin. I, and, and you've told me to rid myself of it. And so we humble ourselves before the Lord and we confess our sin to Him. We confess our sins. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess. This is where the cure begins. Second, we content ourselves with God's goodness. As we've talked about through the whole service tonight, all services service is focused on the goodness of God. And this is what Peter writes here. He says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me ask you a question. Have you tasted the goodness of God? Have you tasted it? Have you? Think about it. Have you been saved? Well, if you've been saved, you've tasted it. And you've tasted it not just the moment you were cleansed of your sin and made a a child of God. You've tasted it over and over and over and over again since that day. God has been good to you, hasn't he? Has he? I know sometimes we doubt his goodness. That happens when we get our eyes off God and start looking at other people. I, I challenge you to go to, to Psalm 73 this week. I'm just going to touch on it. Psalm 73 is written by a, a guy by the name of Asaph. And the first three verses, Asaph begins by saying this. He's like, hey, dude, I know that God is good. He says, in fact, he says, I know that God is good indeed. Like, without, without a doubt, God is good. And he, he, he speaks of the goodness of God for a moment. And then he said, but for me, my feet almost slipped, man. I almost went off the rails. My steps almost went astray from God. Why? He said, because I envied the arrogant. I started looking around. And what I was seeing was that I was seeing that the proud, the arrogant, the wicked, those who don't love God, those who don't live for God, man, it just seems like they're doing okay. They're eating well. They're sleeping well. Their life seems to be trouble-free, unlike ours, you know? I mean, you watch your neighbor, and it just seems like, man, (laughs) they live like the devil, and it just seems like everything's good for them. Everything's wonderful. Like they got no problems in in the world. They're proud and they're proud of it. Uh, Asaph says, man, they run their mouth like God doesn't exist. And it seems like they just keep living on easy street and getting rich. And to Asaph, man, it made him mad. It upset him. You ever been upset about this? This very thing. God, I'm just trying to live for you over here. Why does all this bad stuff keep happening? Why do I keep ending up in sickness? Why, why is it that I can barely get ahead? You know, why, why is it that, that one bad thing after, a, uh, after another happens to me when the unsaved out there seems like they don't have any problems? What is going on? Trying to live a God-fearing life, but all it seems I ever get in return is pain. And suffering and envy was spoiling Asaph's attitude. It was robbing him of his joy. It was making him miserable. It was rotting him at his core. And listen, church, when we find ourselves in the same place as Asaph, we need to do what Asaph did. And when you read Psalm 73 tonight or tomorrow, here's what you'll find out Asaph refocused on God. He said he went into the sanctuary and in the sanctuary, it dawned on him. What happened? How'd that happen? He took his eyes off of what he was envying and who he was envying and he got his eyes back on God. He said, in a moment, what I realized was I remembered their end. (laughs) I realized that, I I remembered their destruction. I remembered that, man, in a moment, they die and they're gone, and they have an eternity of consequence to pay for this. They, they go into suffering for all eternity. And he says, it dawned on me, why was I so foolish when God has been holding my hand all along? Yeah, I've had pain and suffering, but God has been there with me. He's, he's helped me. He's carried me along the way. He's provided for all of my needs. Church, has God provided for all of your needs? Yeah. Have you ever wondered if he was gonna provide a certain need? Yep, I'm pretty sure. But did he provide in some way, shape, or form? Yep, I can guarantee you. We pass the mic around. God always takes care of his children. It might not turn out like we wanted. It might not happen as quick as we wanted. It might take a long time. It might not happen any way, shape, or form like we ever hoped it would. But listen, God will provide for his people, his children. He always does. We know that God has been good. And we know that it's not just material things. It's not just emotional and physical strength. It is the fact that God walks with us and he talks with us and and he he carries us through all the difficulty, all the the mess of this world. He's with us through all of that. And they finally admitted this. This is when you read Psalm 73, you get down to verse 22. Here's what he says. He says, he uses a word I wasn't allowed to use when I was a kid. Now it's English and it's a translation. But he says, I was stupid. How many of you couldn't say stupid when you were a kid? Was I the only one? Okay. Well, you grew up in a pastor's home too, Rick. That's why. Yep. Couldn't, couldn't use the words, you call your sister stupid. Oof. You were asking for a licking. Yeah. Woo. But he says, you know what? He says, I was stupid. I was, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, God. I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you're going to take me up to glory. See? He got a new perspective. He took his eyes off of what he was envying. He got a back on God, and everything made sense again. God's with me. God's got a better place for me. And he says in verse 25, who do I have in heaven but you, Lord? And then he says this, I desire nothing on earth but you. Do you see it? He put down the bag. He put down the bag and he exchanged it for peace. There is so much peace, church, when you can say, I don't want anything. I care for nothing but God. Doesn't mean you don't get up and go to work so you can put food on the table. Don't misunderstand. But you understand, like, it's like I'm not living, craving anything. I have the Lord. The Lord is my provider, and the Lord will take care of me. Earthly evil desires fade away when we content ourselves in the Lord. The cure for envy is contentment. Contentment in Christ. When you're satisfied in Jesus, you don't need someone else, what they have. You don't need to be what someone else is. You don't have to have anything more than what you do. You're not looking at other people for your happiness. You don't need what other people have for a, a happiness fix. The cure for, for envy comes in a contentment that is found not in comparing ourselves to other people, but to Christ. Walking with him, setting our minds on heavenly matters, finding our contentment in Jesus. Peter says, taste. Have you tasted the goodness of God? Look, I encourage you to taste again the goodness of God. If you've been dealing with envy, just go back to tasting it. Just stop and reflect and spend some time this evening, tomorrow. Whenever you find yourself going down the envy trail, you know, stop. And remember, taste. Remember how you've tasted the goodness of God. Put your focus back on God. So we taste and then we thank in this, content, this growing of content. We thank him. We have a spirit of gratitude. We've reflected on his goodness. And then we give him thanks for what he has done. And then after we've, we've, we've tasted it and we've thanked him, then we can take that spiritual food. We can fill up on that spiritual milk that we need, it's soul food, church. We start allowing the word of God to satisfy and to nourish our spirit, man. Our whole attitude and perspective in life changes. So we confess. This is the cure. We content ourselves in the goodness of God and then we cultivate a heart of love. We can't cultivate a heart of love until we've confessed until we've contented ourselves in Christ and when we've confessed our sin and contented ourselves in him then we can cultivate a heart of love here's what 1 Corinthians 13:4 says it says that envy excuse me it says that love does not envy this is the kind of love that is to be practiced love is an offensive weapon so quickly how can we love how can love act as a, have a curing effect in our life against envy? Well, we can love well by celebrating. Celebrating. If you're feeling overlooked, if you're feeling like God somehow passed you up, look up and celebrate with someone else. Be excited. That person that you're kind of upset that they're doing so well and Start celebrating their win. Start celebrating their success. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. Look, this isn't easy to do. But when we learn to do this, when we, when we develop this mindset to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, it becomes a practice we can master and it can almost become like a, like a, a natural reaction where someone is blessed Rejoice with them. Hey, you got that new car? Praise God, man, that's awesome. I'm glad you've been blessed that way. Whatever it is, wherever you find your heart being tempted to envy, immediately just rejoice with them and thank God for what he has done for them. Send an email, a text right on the spot, and it will chase those negative feelings away. We can love well by celebrating. We can love well by giving, just being generous to others out of the kindness of our heart. When we do that, envy flees. When we're we're giving to others with an open hand, it's not all about me and what I can have and what I can grab. And, you know, this kind of a, a life of discontentment and greed, it just fuels things like envy. And so when we hold our possessions with open hands and we're generous and giving to others, it just naturally lends that we're not gonna, we're not gonna be wanting what other people have. We're giving what we have away. We can love well by giving and then we can love well by praying. You find yourself having a hard time with envy with someone, begin praying for them. Look, I know at first it's a struggle to do but over time, again, this practice becomes a habit. This is back to my story about this guy, you know, and the, the church that got this building and all just wonderful things, you know. I, I began hanging out with that guy, rejoicing with him, saying, yay, giving him high fives, praying for him, praying for, that God will bless him. I follow him on Facebook, and I'm always like, hey, man, that's awesome. That's, praise God for that. That's, that's what we have to do. This is how we, <laughs> this is where the cure comes in. You begin praying for God to actually bless them. Uh, F. B. Meyer, old-time preacher, was invited to do this conference up at Moody's place in Northfield, uh, Massachusetts. The following year, G. Campbell Morgan—I don't know if you know these names—but two, you know, preachers, and and I think Morgan was the bigger the bigger guy, but but both relatively well known in their day and. Morgan's meetings were better more people showed up you know just it seemed like God blessed more 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 decisions were made or whatever and Meyer confessed it. you know what man I started to envy and he said the only way I'm going to conquer these feelings is to pray for him daily so he did that he began praying he began praying after that the Lord uh, led uh, Morgan to, to pastor in London and he drew larger crowds than Meyer. Again, Meyer became greatly disturbed, and paced the floor, fearing that that now uh, Morgan would take people from his own church. But again, he went back to his knees and he began to pray that the Lord would fill Campbell Morgan's church so that it cannot hold any more people. This is how he prayed. Fill up his church so that it can't hold any more people and send the overflow to me, Lord. <laughs> but you know what? That's how you battle the temptation to envy. Fewer germs. You think about how, a, how fever kills germs, right? I mean, our body goes into this fever response. To kill germs. Why? Because germs can't live above a certain temperature. Well, give me a heart that is filled with this kind of loving prayer, and the foul germ of envy will die. It will die. Your deliverance from envy will come through love. Accept the love that Christ has for you and practice that love of Christ through you. So here's our next steps, and we're done. Number one, two of them. Which one do you need to make tonight? I will reflect upon the evil of my heart to discover where it lurks within my heart, then confess and forsake it. Right? We have to be able to identify that it's there. We have to identify that we've been carrying this heavy baggage of envy. Number two, I will put down the heavy baggage of envy Choosing to be content with the goodness of God upon my life and celebrating His goodness in the lives of others. Church, can we do that? Can we take that step? Can we choose that we're going to be content in the goodness of God, How, however God has blessed us, whatever God is doing in our life? We don't have to have other people's blessings. We're just going to be content in what God is doing in our lives and we will celebrate the goodness of God in others' lives. Will you take that step? When we do, by his grace, here's what we're able to say. I do not need to covet my neighbor's house. I do not need to covet my neighbor's spouse. I don't need to covet my neighbor's family or ministry or opportunities. I do not need to grasp for the talents and gifts of others. I am not defined by who others are or what they have. I am defined by the grace of God. Therefore, I will refuse to measure myself by a false standard. I will resist the compulsive and relentless urge to compete with everyone under the sun. I will put to death malicious dreams about the downfall and failure of others by savoring the knowledge that God has promised to graciously, freely, and abundantly give to me and them all the things in his beloved Son. We will be able to say, Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Jesus is enough for me. Would you bow your heads together with me? Which next step do you need to take? Heavenly Father, we know that envy and jealousy are no match for your mercy and grace. Forgive us, Lord, for grumbling over how you bless others, and help us to be grateful for all the ways you have kindly blessed us.